Hey, this is David Schultz, audio producer here at Bloomberg Law. Just wanted to let you know we've created a couple new ways for you to interact with us. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other podcasts, please give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 703-341-3690. That's 703-341-3690. We might just use your comments in a future episode. You can also reach out to us by email at podcast at bloomberglaw.com or on Twitter, at BLaw. We would love to hear your thoughts. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Justice Breyer saves Obamacare, along with the rest of the court, that is, besides Justice Alito and Gorsuch. And that was just one of this week's five opinions. We also got the latest victory for religious exemption from anti-discrimination law. Justice Sotomayor battles Justice Thomas on the history of the war on drugs and more. Kimberly, let's get started breaking down these opinions and what they might show behind the scenes at the court. Help us set the stage for what Justice Alito called the third installment in our epic Affordable Care Act trilogy. Force is strong in this one. I think he meant that in a bad way, but let's find out. Well, I'm excited for one to nerd out on an epic trilogy. Great shot, kid. That was one in a million. Remember, the Force will be with you always. But to understand this challenge, we're going to have to go back in time a long time ago in a court far, far away, or rather in 2012 at the U.S. Supreme Court, the justices upheld the Affordable Care Act in its first constitutional challenge with Chief Justice Roberts pulling off a surprise act by saying that the law's, quote, individual mandate was constitutional because it was a valid use of Congress's taxing power. So this individual mandate, listeners may remember, requires that you obtain insurance, health insurance, and if you don't, you'll be fined, or at least you used to be fined. So we're going to fast forward to 2017. Republicans are in power. As part of their tax cuts, they zeroed out the so-called tax. And afterwards, red states led by Texas sued, saying that without the tax, the whole constitutional basis for the legislation was gone and that the entire act must be thrown out. The Supreme Court, though, they didn't reach that issue. Instead, they found that Texas did not have standing to bring the suit. So... I guess technically we could see another sort of like existential crisis um, challenging the entire Affordable Care Act. But our great healthcare reporter Lydia Wheeler says these kind of challenges are probably done for now. Um, but there are other cases about Obamacare working their way through the courts. The Supreme Court may actually take up one in the future involving so-called risk corridors. So stay tuned. So Kimberly, Justice Breyer writes this majority opinion. It's relatively short, straightforward, 7-2 opinion. What took so long for this to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, so this was the longest outstanding case along with Fulton, which we'll talk about later. Both were argued back in November. I think people were getting a little nervous that this case was taking so long. You know, the challenge had really been criticized by people both on the left and the right as saying it kind of um, was trying to accomplish through the courts what Republicans couldn't get done in Congress. So what took so long? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, this is like a 15-page majority opinion. It seems like something happened behind the scenes that we don't know about. 
Um, you know, I talked to some people yesterday and a lot of them had some conspiracy theories about uh, some shuffling around that maybe happened in Fulton and this case. But um, did that, was that helpful? Did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk about Fulton first. Maybe it'll all make more sense when we talk about both of the cases together. So Fulton against Philadelphia, this is the latest clash between religious rights and LGBT rights. And like in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case and other recent cases like the COVID cases, the religious right prevailed here again. The court was unanimous in saying so on the bottom line. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the main opinion saying the city's refusal to exempt Catholic social services from its anti-discrimination rules violated the First Amendment. CSS had said it wouldn't certify same-sex couples to be place with foster children, but because the city's foster care contract provides exceptions to its anti-discrimination rule, Roberts said the law isn't generally applicable. And that means the court didn't need to address this issue of the precedent in Employment Division against Smith, which says laws burdening religion, incidentally, aren't usually subject to strict scrutiny so long as they're neutral and generally applicable. And so we said this was unanimous at least on the bottom line, but there was some fracturing here within the opinion. Justice Alito, who had a rough day on Thursday, uh, you know, he mentioned the Affordable Care Act trilogy. Thursday was kind of a trilogy for him, too, uh, losing in all three of these cases. But he wrote what was published as a very long concurring opinion, joined by Thomas and Gorsuch. Those three said that Smith should be overruled, the case I just mentioned, and they criticized the majority for punting on that bigger issue. Here's what Alito wrote, quote, this decision might as well be written on the dissolving paper sold in magic shops. The city has been adamant about pressuring CSS to give in. If the city wants to get around today's decision, it can simply eliminate the never used exemption power, end quote. Hold on. Wait a second. You're just going to blow past the dissolving paper. Does that actually exist? I haven't been to a magic shop in, in a while, but. Well, it exists and then it doesn't. That's his whole point. <laughs> so thank you for setting up that terrible line from me. So Justice Barrett, she wrote a much shorter concurrence joined by Kavanaugh and mostly by Justice Breyer, questioning the Smith precedent, but saying it's not clear what should replace Smith if it were to be overruled. So unanimous on the bottom line, but some fractures there between the uh, further to the right of the court that really wants to overrule this Smith decision, but there weren't enough votes for that. Hey, Jordan, um, can we introduce a phrase into this discussion? The language laying out, you know, where all the justices stand in the three cases this week were, to use the legal term, totally bonkers. Um, so I really liked this one um, in the Fulton case where uh, Barrett, Jay filed a concurring opinion in which Kavanaugh Jay joined and in which Breyer Jay joined as to all but the first paragraph. Um, so I really appreciate when they do stuff like that. Um, it makes it really easy to explain what's happening in the case and what the law is. So thank you. Thank you, justices. Yeah, and it gets much worse in the Nestle case. Before we go into that, Kimberly, one thing that I thought was interesting about this Fulton case was kind of the question of who won here. Mm -hmm. Obviously, on the bottom line, the religion claim won, but it didn't go as far as the religious side wanted it to. And so j just to kind of 
show this, uh, to take two reactions from opposite ends of the spectrum here, Beckett, the group that argued the case and who uh, we had Will Hahn, one of their attorneys, as a guest in setting up the case, they hail this as a unanimous victory for religious freedom. Here's what David Cole from the ACLU said. He says, for years, the religious right has sought a First Amendment license to discriminate against LGBT folks. They didn't get it in Masterpiece, and they didn't get it today in Fulton. We live to fight another day. So you have both sides here sort of claiming a victory, or at least on the LGBT side, not a loss or not as much of a loss. We can pretty much always be sure that the religious claim is going to win at the court. But in terms of saying anything beyond that, it's tough to say, right? It. I think it is. And I think the votes here are really interesting. You know, we talked a lot about how this was unanimous and that there's kind of some hidden disagreement. Uh, But I think it also sets up this kind of separation among the court's conservatives. So, you know, we do have a six to three conservative majority, but it's more, it's looking more and more like we have sort of a 3-3-3 setup on the court. So, you know, the liberals and then, you know, the conservatives who are willing to toss away precedent, and then maybe three conservatives in the middle who, you know, they they might not think that these cases are really rightly decided, but they don't, they want to go slow. They don't want to shock the system with major changes in the law. So until um, next term, until next term, exactly. That's what I was going to say is that the rubber will meet the road next term when, <laughs> So I was talking to Eric Siegel yesterday, and he described it that next term, the, quote, world will end. That's Um, good to know. And for those of you who don't know, Eric Siegel is a law professor at Georgia State University, a pretty big critic of the court. Before we get into Nestle, Kimberly, let's get back to this conspiracy theory or just theory that we were getting into in terms of why the ACA case and the Fulton case wound up taking so long. There's the idea that Justice Alito, who wrote this incredibly long concurring opinion in Fulton, that maybe that started out as the majority opinion, right? That's right. So uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, but just to step back, the Supreme Court has some interesting traditions where, you know, they try to make it so that each justice you know, handles their fair share of cases, and they try to split up the cases in the sitting so that each justice has, you know, one in each sitting. And so it's a fun game that a lot of court watchers play to try and read the tea leaves to see who hasn't written, what opinions are left, and what that might say about, you know, the outcome that they might have. So I think the common thinking was that the chief justice was going to be writing the Obamacare case, and Justice Alito, who's written many of the court's prominent um, religious cases, would be writing Fulton. Of course, that didn't happen. So just based on the length, of Justice Alito's concurrence. It seems like maybe he originally had the majority here and uh, it fell apart somewhere and the Chief Justice took over writing this one and perhaps handed off the Obamacare case to Breyer. So I don't know. We, We never really will know what happened. All right. So now that that's all out there, tell us about this, this third case that kind of got swept away amidst the ACA and Fulton opinions on Thursday, the Nestle case, which is also an important one, but kind of got overshadowed a bit. It is. And Nestle is a really, really interesting case. I think if you are looking to see, um, 
you know, playing along with these games of where the justices' alliances might be, how they might break down. This one's a really interesting one to watch. So Nestle is one in a string of cases dealing with the centuries-old law, the Alien Tort Statute. So this was passed in the 1700s, and for, you know, 150 years or more, the statute was pretty quiet. Nobody um, paid much attention to it. In the early 2000s, Um, some people started to use the law as a way to account for human rights abuses that happened abroad. So this case here was brought by uh, Mali citizens who say they were trafficked into the Ivory Coast to produce cocoa. And they sued Nestle and their U.S. arms, um, saying that all of the decision-making happened here in the United States and led to child slavery in the Ivory Coast. And so it's U.S. courts that should be hearing their challenges. Now, the Supreme Court, you know, in the past decade had gotten wind that plaintiffs were trying to use the alien tort statute in this way, and they've been slowly chipping away at it. Uh, This is another in that continuation of trying to pull back on the alien tort statute. The court rejected the idea that these kind of claims of general corporate Uh, decision-making could lead to a case in the United States, so they sent the case back. Looks like the plaintiffs are going to try again, but I think, uh, you know, if we are reading the tea leaves, I think most of these ATS suits are pretty much dead on arrival. There was an interesting thing, so we mentioned Justice Alito's uh, terrible trilogy uh, yesterday. This was the actual question in the case, was whether domestic corporations could be held liable under Um, This alien tort statute, the Supreme Court didn't answer that, but it does seem like most or at least a majority on the court, including Justice Alito, uh, thinks that, you know, they can be held liable. It doesn't matter for this case particularly, but it will be interesting to see how lower courts pick up on the language here and uh, when deciding climate change lawsuits. So something to watch. That's right. And last thing on this case, I wanted to flag since we discussed it on a prior episode this is the case where neil katyal had argued on behalf of nestle and the underlying claim was this child slavery allegation and uh, neil had gotten a bunch of criticism for defending this position obviously you know conflicting with some of the more liberal public stances he's taken that he's highlighted and before the decision came out tom goldstein Uh, from SCOTUS blog had uh, sort of defended Neil and said all the criticism of him was overblown and basically you don't understand how law works and how the Supreme Court works. Uh, And then after the decision came out, this was uh, almost a unanimous decision, at least with all the Democratic appointees in the majority. And so Tom takes over the SCOTUS blog account to tweet, quote, now do we say that Sonia Sotomayor and the other liberals supported child slavery by all voting for Nestle today? Of course not. And Nestle's lawyers like Neil Katyal obviously don't either. The chief attacks on the court and thoughtful lawyers did not age well, end quote. All of these decisions came down on Thursday, and I just wanted to thank the Supreme Court again for issuing 38 really low-profile opinions that were unanimous and slowly dripped out of the court one at a time, and then issuing kind of the biggest decisions of the term on one day. I I really appreciate that. Okay, um, Jordan, let's talk about the cases that came out on Monday. We had the first step act, right? Terry, this was another unanimous opinion. Yes, 
the the breakdown anyway is much simpler than in the Nestle case, which was kind of nuts with all of the different concurrences and whatnot. Um, the issue is complicated, which we discussed before. But anyway, it's a criminal case that went against the defendant who wanted resentencing for his crack cocaine conviction. And this involves the three tiers of federal sentencing, which has mandatory minimums for the top two tiers, but not for the lowest tier. And in the most recent reform law, the First Step Act, the text of the law clearly allowed for more serious offenders to get resentencing under those top tiers. But the law wasn't clear on whether lower level offenders can get resentencing. You might have thought based on common sense that if more serious offenders can get resentencing, then lower level offenders should be able to as well. And even some of the politicians who passed the First Step Act submitted an amicus brief to the court saying, yes, this is what we wanted. We wanted these people to get relief. But that wasn't enough because according to Justice Thomas's majority opinion, which all the court joined on at least the bottom line, said no, Terry can't get resentencing because the law wasn't clear enough about that, because there's no mandatory minimum that changes as to him because he didn't have a mandatory minimum in the first place. And that's it. That's the end of the that's the end of the story. Everybody agrees. Kumbaya, right? Kumbaya on the bottom line, but there's a bit of a footnote war between Thomas and Sotomayor. Sotomayor writes a separate opinion calling on Congress to fix what she sees as the mess that it made and to write a better law. (laughs) I love it when they do that. Yeah, so that was the gist of why she wrote, but separately she throws in a footnote saying the reason she doesn't fully join Thomas's opinion, which... In Thomas's opinion, he details the some of the history of the 1986 drug law, which started those mandatory minimums because, quote, according to Sotomayor, quote, it includes an unnecessary, incomplete, and sanitized history of the 100 to 1 ratio, end quote, referring to the crack cocaine to powder cocaine ratio, which prompted all of these racial disparities. And Sotomayor's problem was that in Thomas's opinion, in a footnote, he points out that black leaders and politicians at the time in the 80s were calling for these tough on crime measures against crack. And Thomas doesn't exactly say that this is why he's doing this, but it's obviously meant to counteract or at least add some context to the racial disparities that the law wound up having against black people. But Sotomayor, in her footnote, she points out that the majority doesn't acknowledge the ratio's real-world impact and that the Congressional Black Caucus ultimately spoke out against the law. But in the end, I think it's still noteworthy that this was just a footnote in a concurrence, and Sotomayor doesn't dissent from the bottom line. So despite how strongly she's speaking out against Thomas's history of the law, she still agrees that Terry couldn't get relief. So that's the bottom line there. I think Justice Thomas and Justice Sotomayor are so interesting on how they approach, you know, these things that deal with race because they come from sort of not similar backgrounds, but more similar than the other justices. And and yet they're just so opposite on, you know, how they come out on things like affirmative action, how they come out on, you know, even the history of like the crack cocaine laws, um, also, just wanted to note that they share a birthday week, right? So Justice Thomas is June 23rd and Justice Sotomayor is June 25th. So I always love that. Oh, we have more? We have more. 
why don't you give us the down and dirty, maybe like take 20 minutes to describe what's going on in the Greer and Gary cases. Here we go. Greer and Gary, they were decided together on Monday. This was another near unanimous ruling in another criminal case that went against the defense. This one's about felon in possession gun cases. So after a 2019 case, federal prosecutors now need to prove both that the person knowingly possessed the gun and knew they were a felon. Sounds kind of weird, right? I mean, it's like you'll probably know if you're a felon. So what's the big deal, right? Uh, I should say there are some exceptions to that general way of thinking, which we don't need to get into here. But the bottom line is the Supreme Court agreed with that sort of common sense idea that most people know if they were convicted of felonies. So it's basically not that big a deal. The bottom line is the Supreme Court ruled against the two defendants, Greer and Gary, saying that in the absence of proof of their felon status when they were convicted, that doesn't mean that they can get their convictions overturned. To do so, they need to offer some type of proof on appeal that they would have actually challenged their felon status, basically that it would have actually made a difference if they were to raise that challenge. Well, I thought it was interesting that they kind of slipped in an extra sort of opinion, um, deciding both the Greer and Gary cases uh, in one opinion. Both cases were argued, they were argued separately. So that's going to actually lead to just 56 opinions this term, which is pretty slim. Um, You know, we saw a similar number last year, but of course, you know, the court ditched like 10 of its cases due to COVID. So, you know, the justices this term had a 10-case jump, uh, and yet still, you know, 56 cases. That's You know what that is? That's life tenure. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Well, um, on their way to getting out those 56 opinions, we heard that the court will release uh, more opinions on next week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So, Kimberly, we got two of the biggies in one day. There's still some more left. What are you watching as the term comes to a close? Yeah, so actually there are a lot of really interesting cases that we're still waiting on. I think one that we've talked about here that uh, is kind of flying under the radar is that voting rights case out of Arizona, Brnovich. And we have a lot of other opinions, those challenging the separation of powers. We've got that NCAA case about student athletes. So, and of course, the you know, the cheerleader case. So a lot more to come. Don't tune out just yet. But until we get those cases, you can follow along with the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. For our next season of Uncommon Law, we're looking at the regulatory future of big tech. The giants need to be broken up. Facebook, Google, all of them. Is big tech impinging on your right to free speech? They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter. Misinformation, disinformation. It's like a big Venn diagram. We do not want to become the arbiters of truth. We're calling this series Unchecked. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.